Welcome to part two of Horses Don't Eat Moon Pies by Pat Conroy, published in Faces of South Carolina, Essays on South Carolina in Transition, edited by Franklin Ashley, 1974. 21 years have passed. DuPonters are active in church affairs, civic groups, charities, school organization, and committees. They have infiltrated where they could. As yet, the Southern courtesies have not seduced them completely. Of course, every Southerner knows that no one can adopt the full plumage of the Old South faster than, than a transplanted Yankee. But the DuPonters generally have burrowed in following their own personal instincts. They know their place in Aiken's great chain of being. Some of them have even cracked into the social circle of old Aikenites, and they know that God holds no higher reward for them. Most of the DuPonters, however, have eased into their social limbo with empirical grace, with the consciousness of people who understand the theories of evolution and the town is constantly evolving, shifting, and changing. Slowly, over 21 years, a miracle strange as Cana has taken place in a thousand DuPont homes. It is a miracle profound and wonderful, humorous and unsettling, a commentary on the possibility of rebirth and resurrection in the American dream enacted in the pine and Bermuda grass suburbs, heavy with DuPonters. In some of these homes, the children of DuPonters, yes, these new Aikenites born on Aiken soil, natives of Aiken, their first breath drawn in Aiken, schooled in Aiken, yes, these children of the 20th century of mobile America, of the fission of atoms, of fathers tutored in the mystery of the elemental charts. These children speak. And to the amazement of parents bred in Stony Brook, Indianapolis, Oak Park, and San Rafael, a softness infects their children's voices. A yawl escapes here and there. The speech of the South, insidious, airy, proud in its rejection of the letter R, possesses their children. It is in a flash of pain recognition for some, amused wonder for others that they realize that they, 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 DuPonters, are raising Southern children. Their children have received the gift of the tongue, the gift of the soil, the gift of blood, Southern blood. I am not your mama, son. I am your mother, a, DuPont, a DuPonter mother said to her son. And quit saying y'all, goddammit. The blacks of Aiken seem to lack the essential fury of men and women locked into the severe boundaries of the Old South. Aiken does not have to fear the fire next time because there has not been a fire the first time. Two blacks proffered theories about the lack of angry blacks in town. The winter colony drained off the most talented blacks and trained them as servants and houseboys. The brightest young blacks are bright enough to realize that Aiken, South Carolina is not the town where their talents will be most appreciated. Blacks are still following the drinking gourd north and into the big cities. Who is the black man that blacks look to as their leader in Aiken? Who is the black that the white men fear? I asked a black woman on Park Street. Let me think, she answered. There must be somebody. What hotel are you staying at? I'll call you if I can think of anybody. 
Erskine Caldwell wrote about Horse Creek Valley in God's Little Acre. The valley is the nasty little secret of Aiken County. It is a series of depressing mill towns that cluster along the polluted edges of Horse Creek, a blighted ribbon of water that serves as a large intestine between the towns of North Augusta and Aiken. In this valley, the textile industry of South Carolina had its birth. For 20 miles, America has a savage and well-preserved vision of what was wrong with the Industrial Revolution. Along Highway 421, the towns of Vaucluse, Graniteville, Warrensville, Bath, Langley, and Clearwater, and a dozen or more sad offshoot communities blend into each other. Each town has as much visual uniqueness as a Chinese checker. The towns are unincorporated. Baptist and fundamentalist churches line the main road in staggering numbers, jockeying for position with sad off-brand gas stations. When a gas station goes broke, it is quickly taken over as a Baptist church of the most paleolithic theological orientation. A man can buy a lot of gas and do a lot of praying in Horse Creek Valley, and this makes remarkably good sense. Both gasoline and prayer are two sure exunts from the valley. But whether you leave the valley by Chevrolet or in a casket provided by J.M. Posey and Sons, it is best to prepare a statistic common in the valley declares that there are more Baptist churches per square mile in the valley than any place on earth. But the truly memorable statistic is one that a stranger fastens his attention to and causes all men to reflect on the nature of God and men in Horse Creek Valley. The valley had the highest unsolved murder rate in the country. The valley shelters a grim and fiercely proud native. Often, a boy who enters the textile mill at Graniteville had a father who worked the same shift, a grandfather, possibly a great-grandfather. The mill is in his blood. Its weaves and bobbins are an ingrained heritage. History had trapped him. It takes an uncommon man to fight against a destiny of cotton cloth in graveyard shifts. The valley breeds the craziest bastards in the world, an Aiken businessman told me. One of the big problems I have in counseling girls in the valley is incest. That's right, incest, said a teacher's aide. I love the valley and the people of the valley, said an Aiken florist. I'm from the valley. Best damn people in the world live in the valley. I ought to know. I've lived there 55 years, a man from Warrenville said. What are you going to the valley for? You're not going to find anything about Aiken in the Valley. Jerry Swing, my high school basketball coach 10 years ago, sits in the library of Langley Bath Clearwater High School and talks about his experiences as a school principal in the Valley. Talking with him is Ethel Woodruff, the school's librarian, and Nathaniel Irvin, a black psychology teacher. They are defensive about the kids they teach and angry over the knee-jerk fear and prejudice summoned from the glands of Aikenites when the Valley is mentioned. I came from a small mill town myself, Pat. You didn't know that when I coached you, but you didn't know a lot of things back then. I had to fight my way out of a mill town and fight my way through college. That's why I love these kids and why I identify with them, said Jerry. The Valley kids got an inferiority complex a mile wide, Ethel Woodruff adds. They got to fight against things that an Aiken kid never dreamed of. 
why I've seen the mill kids come into school year after year, having had nothing for, for breakfast except a moon pie and a Pepsi Cola. Now I ask you, what kind of breakfast is a moon pie and a Pepsi Cola? It's getting better though, Jerry spoke up again. The Valley kids are coming up for air. They'll scratch for it. One great problem in the Valley is how early these girls in the high school become pregnant and get married, Mr. Irvin said. That's just the way of the Valley, Miss Woodruff said. That's just the way it's always been. Nowadays, we marry them, then teach them, Jerry said, smiling. We're the only high school I know of that has to have a midwife at graduation. The mill snaps up a lot of our students before they can finish high school. They've been snapping them up for a hundred years, said Mr. Irvin. How did integration go in the valley, I asked the group. Miss Woodruff was the first to answer. The valley had very little problem with integration. It's ironic, too, because the valley used to have one of the most active Ku Klux Klans in the state. I think the reason for it is this. You have problems with integration in a pseudo-sophisticated neighborhood, but not in the valley. I agree, Jerry said. I think the kids said, we ain't got that much. We got less to lose. Black people are more like we are than these other rich white people. Look, there's the N-words from the valley and the old white lint heads from the valley, but really all of us are just kids from the valley. Mr. Irwin quickly said, I do a little preaching on the side when I'm not teaching. A couple of years ago, two of my white students came up to me and asked me if I'd marry them. A few weeks later, I showed up at the girl's house, met her parents, and bound these two children in the eyes of the Lord. Where else in Aiken County would I be invited into a white home to perform a wedding ceremony? Nowhere, but right here in the valley. I think the important thing now, Pat, is this. What can we do as teachers to help those kids from the valley think they're as good as the kids from Aiken and North Augusta, Jerry said soberly, his sad blue eyes, the eyes of an old coach, burning with the question. I get sick of Aiken sometimes, Miss Woodruff snapped. I've always liked people better than polo ponies. A religion as deeply rooted as Christianity rules the mill-haunted roads of the valley. This faith, an echoing gospel etched in the blood of the American labor movement, is a truculent, feral hatred of labor unions. It lies as deep in the consciousness of the valley as the kaolin mine in the hills above Horse Creek. Over the years, a vast propaganda campaign has convinced the mill workers of the valley that unions are synonymous with godlessness, communism, and loss of jobs. Union organizers in the 20s entered a hostile viper's nest when they tried to organize the valley. The mill owners prevailed. The mill is a father, and his mutely obedient children live in the long rows of shotgun houses, each house a reflection of the next house, each village a chimerical walk through a hall of mirrors where there are no grotesque images, no distortion of features, but only the chilling repetition of a false start, an evil conception. The houses stretch like rosary beads for 20 miles, and somehow, in this colloquial anachronism back to the days of sweatshops and mill towns, you realize that the people of Horse Creek Valley are at war with a terrible enemy, the people of Horse Creek Valley. Politically, they are suicidal. 
Each town, whether it is Vaucluse, Langley, or Warrenville, would revolt if someone tried to bind the entire valley into one political unit. Each town is as discreet and independent as a European principality. The only organization they have is the mill. The mill cares for them, feeds them, entertains them, takes care of their sick, and is always ready to perform fatherly duties if emergencies arise. No one can convince the people of the valley that the reason they are so buried in this miasma of hopelessness is directly due to the benign shepherding of the mill. No one has told these people along the long, sad highway that the mill is guilty of high crimes, unforgivable crimes, crimes for which they would fiercely deny responsibility. But that is irrelevant. Until the valley produces a leader who grew up in the mill town boxes, who sweated under a loom, and who was angry at the system that manufactured the human wreckage, who have been bred like cattle to man the assembly line and educated in schools owned by the mills, until this man arises, the people of the valley will continue political ter pterodactyls like Strom Thurmond, will continue to salivate blood at the mention of unions, and continue to isolate themselves in tribes along one of the saddest roads in America. The unions will eventually have to come to Horse Creek Valley to break up the iron traditions of servitude and to the mill. But right now, if Jesus Christ himself walked into Horse Creek Valley as a union organizer, he would be lucky to escape with something as mild as a crucifixion. What are you going to write about Aiken, you simple ass? The pretty wife of a Duponter asked me. The Southerner must come soon to some hard decisions. What in the South is worth preserving? What deserves protection? What qualities of Southern life are holy parts of the region whose absence would change the very nature of the region? What does it mean to be a Southerner in June of 1973? What will it mean to Southern children in 20 years. The South was warned. For decades, crabbed old prophets fulminated against the encroachment of industry. These men wrote passionately, but they wrote too late. The destiny of the South was bound to industry and all the essays in the world would not change this. The essays were the last gasps before the deluge. Aiken is a perfect crucible for study of industry, transforming a small town into an important industrial center. Besides the Savannah River plant, Aiken County shelters Owens Corning Fiberglass, Pyle National, Warner Brothers, the textile companies of the Valley, and Kimberly Clark is building. Despite its continued fixation with horses, the town is becoming top-heavy with industry. It is in the process of shedding its small town skin. Aiken is going all the way. One of the prettiest towns in America has succumbed to the seduction of quick money. In full knowledge of her zealotry, Aiken has embraced vulgarity and likes the way it feels. Leading out of Aiken is Richland Avenue that turns at some arbitrary point into the old Augusta Highway. Aiken chose this road as her capitulation to the gods of plastic. Richland was dubbed her street of shame. Driving down Richland, one sees the old town of Aiken dying at the end of a magnificent canopy of trees. Columns disappear. The bright flowers of June give off a last, desperate perfume. Then it begins. 
America's great enemy of aesthetics is the chain store. Aiken and America are in danger of leaving a bleak contribution to mankind if we are to be judged by future civilizations on what is excavated from our present one. The judgments levied upon our era will come from what artifacts? The plastic icon of Colonel Sanders will be our Colossus of Rhodes, the McDonald's Arch our Flying Buttress, the Winn-Dixie Supermarket our Parthenon, going down Richland, past the gas station, the shopping centers, the iridescent glossy stores that serve man, but serve him quickly, quickly. One sees on both sides of the road the cathedrals of plastic rising up one story, dehumanizing monuments to fast foods. In America, there must be efficiency, speed, technological awareness, even in what we eat. We are in America. Things are fast, ugly, chromium-plated, neon-lighted, brightly colored. We are ablaze in plastic, buffeted by hamburgers on the wing, pizza taking the curve, and life coming down the home stretch. We move into the center of the dead land, crowding into Richland Avenue, and we say in one loud collective ascent, This is America. This is fast. This is good. But this is also Aiken, South Carolina. Once the South had to ward off the assaults of the Philistines. No more. Now the Philistine says, Y'all come, can deliver a spontaneous defense of collard greens and belongs to the sons of the Confederacy. The Philistine is as southern as red eye gravy. He is the face staring back at our mirror. He carries our briefcase. He signs our names to forms that ignite the bulldozers, hire the contractors, and clear the pine. Perhaps the JC factor has overwhelmed us. The South reels under the invasion of these indefatigable, bright-eyed, buttoned-down, fashionably coiffed, up-and-coming, go-getting boys out of K.A. who would sell their ancestral burial plot if Kmart came up with the right price. They would move grandpa's bones so the world could be made safer for a hearty burger. In a euphemism of the age, they call themselves developers and have visions of driveways, barbecue sets, patios, four-bedroom modern colonials and Bermuda grass whenever they gaze at an uncut forest. They have their poetry. They name their suburbs Fox Chase, Calmia Hills, Virginia Acres, Westwood, and Silver Bluff Estates. You will never find a development named hog intestines or gopher guts. Developers use words. Words are the pimps that push the plastic in the patios. They are overrunning Aiken. They are remaking the South into the image of everywhere else. They are the HUD. Aiken thunders with discordant echoes of itself. Aiken needs a loosening up, a gathering together of its energies, Aiken needs to define itself, to set the boundaries, to form its goals. It is a town of such exquisite beauty and matchless color that it deserves the help of townsmen who love her. Winter colonists, blacks, old Aikenites, the valley people, DuPonters, each with their own unique destinies bound to this lovely, beleaguered town. For better or worse, these are the people who will live their lives out beneath the magnolias and the McDonald's arch. This is where they will die. For all of them, Aiken is holy ground. Horses Don't Eat Moon Pies by Pat Conroy, 1974.